0: It is Christmas. <laughs> and y'all showed up, and you guys are like punchy this morning. It's kind of exciting. Take your Bibles, go to Galatians chapter four. Galatians chapter four. We, we, we titled our um, series uh, for Christmas, "The Miracles of Christmas." and, and or the Miracle of Christmas." I want to make sure that um, you understand what we're talking about before we kind of jump into it. Um, we're not talking about your typical uh, miracle that happens at, during Christmas season where you show up at Christmas lunch and your aunt comes in and you tell her that you're dating and she's like, it's a Christmas miracle. We don't mean that one. Um, we're, <laughs> we're talking about something a little more significant than that. We're not, we're not talking about, um, we're not going to talk through the specifics of the Christmas story yet. That'll come. But really the focus of this is to be reminded of what it is That you have been given because God showed up. So, so what is it that is now yours? I mean, okay, the baby in the manger, you got the star, the wise men shepherds, the heavenly hosts, Mary pondering all these things in her heart. You've got all those different things of Christmas, but but in reality, if it stops just at the sweet sentimentality and the the emotionalism and the, the traditionalism of Christmas morning, then you have missed the point. And what I want to do this morning and praying that God will allow me to do is to encourage you as we seek to be reminded of what it means uh, that Christmas happened, that God showed up. So, so Christmas is all about waiting. I mean, it is in scripture and it is in the Taylor household. Christmas morning is about waiting. I, I am not sure who the, who the criminal is that came up with the idea of giving your kid a gift on Christmas Eve was a good idea. I have a feeling it was probably a kid, but that does not happen in the Taylor home, Uh uh-uh. Christmas morning, I need to strike a delicate balance between tormenting my children and enraging my wife. And there's a fine line between those two things on Christmas morning when it comes to my Christmas is about waiting. And so there is a tradition in our home, um, then the tradition is this Christmas morning does not get underway <clears throat> until dad's had a shower, dad's had a cup of coffee, and dad's apologized to mom at least once. Once those three things happen, Christmas morning can uh, begin. Um, and, and it used to be, you know, you know how it is, if you have older kids now, you, you understand the transition that happens. It used to be Christmas morning, you would have the kids waiting outside your door at like 3.30, All right? then they get older, it's like, hey, it's nine. You want to get up and do presents? Just another hour. So, so the waiting changes a little bit. But there's still that memory of the kids at the top of the stairs looking down and just anticipating. And for our family, it's interesting. I mean, they love the gifts and everything. But I think for our kids, what they anticipated more than the gifts under the tree was what was in the stocking. That is where my wife excels. She can fit things in stockings that don't fit. And so it's an adventure to come down and see this sock that is just overflowing, and the seams are all stretching to their fullest. And, but that, that's the enthusiasm and the, the excitement. And they would sit at the top of the stairs, ready to come down in the morning, and, and because I hadn't apologized to Stephanie yet, or I hadn't finished my cup of coffee, it would be, how much longer? Can we come down yet? How, much lo- how long do we have to wait? How long do we have to wait? I mean, that, that's, we're impatient people, like the kids are impatient on Christmas morning. And you can't tell me you're not. Every single one of you in this room is an impatient person. It's so crazy how quick technology changes your patience level. I mean, if you had the speed of dial-up internet that is today, if you had that 20 years ago, you'd be like, this is amazing. You have an app on your phone that just doesn't open right away, and you're like, psh, I got to buy a new one. You know where we get to see that you are impatient people the most? when we try to dismiss you by rose. <laughs> you to ask Chris, one week I said, in the middle of my message, right Chris? I said, listen, uh, I'm gonna preach long so you just need to leave right away. Well, little did I know you were all like, yes! And so he came through to dismiss you by rose and he was trampled in the way because you're like, I ain't waiting for nobody. We hate waiting. That's similar to the idea that we find in the text this morning. Look at Galatians chapter 4 starting in verse 1. Paul says this, now, I say that as long as the heir is a child, <clears throat> he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of of the law. Let me stop right there. Uh, there. There's so many layers that are to be found in this passage and in this illustration that Paul is using. Um, I'm not going to be able to cover all of them, but let me just, just say that the Galatians, in context, were struggling with their relationship to God's holy law. They, they, they had um, heard about Christ, accepted Christ, but now they were allowing in this... Um, this group of people who were teaching them, the Judaizers, that, that you must obey all of God's law as well in order to be saved. They were adding to the gospel. And, and what Paul has been doing through Galatians, he's been trying to redefine the purpose of the law for these people. He's saying, as you look at God's law, there's a four, fourfold purpose. First of all, it's supposed to define what sin is. It's supposed to declare sin as rebellion against God. It's supposed to establish the fact that you are deserving of death for that sin and rebellion. And finally, it was used as an illustration. As you look back at the Old Testament and the Israelites trying to achieve their salvation and acceptance from God through their obedience to the law, it was an illustration of the fact that ain't nobody going to be able to obey the law and get God's acceptance. And so Paul's kind of unpacking those things. And now he turns to this illustration and he says, okay, I want you to use your imagination with me for a minute. Imagine being ridiculously rich. Imagine your daddy being, this is something that I actually say, so I apologize, being stupid rich. You have no idea what to do with all the money, but actually you don't, your daddy has all that money. Imagine for a moment that, that your dad has decided that this is going to be your inheritance, but you don't get to touch it until a certain age. And so what he's done, he's taken a trustee or a guardian to watch over you to ensure that you, you are on your best behavior, and that trustee or guardian goes around with you, and you go shopping one day, and you walk into the store, and you see something you really want, you certainly can afford it, and so you take it off the shelf, and the trustee or guardian goes, eh, eh, eh. not until your dad says you can have the money. So in effect, that child, although ridiculously wealthy, is no different than the trustee. He's no different than his father's servants because he doesn't actually have the money in his hand. Even though he is the heir apparent, he's not free to do what he wants. He is is bound. He's not free. The the New Living Translation translates those first three verses this way. Let me read this to you. (coughs) Excuse me. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father has set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. Because we were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. What Paul is saying is, here is a picture of the hundreds of years before the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ. Here is a number of people that that are just longing for and waiting and crying out for freedom, but they're bound by the law. Now, they weren't without hope because they had been given these promises. But that, but, but that doesn't make the waiting any easier. It still makes it difficult. It makes it difficult to hear for, for hundreds upon hundreds of years, from, from Moses to Malachi, about this coming Messiah, about this king who would come to deliver Israel. In their head, they're wrestling with the fact that these prophets said, this one who is to come is going to be born of a virgin. He, he's going to be from Bethlehem, yet coming out of Egypt and called a Nazarene. They're, they're wrestling in their head with this whole thing. He is hes coming out of the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the tribe of Judah, an ancestor of Jesse and of David. And they're longing for that day when all of those things make sense. They all happen. So for most of, of human history, everybody was waiting and waiting waiting and waiting like an underaged minor waiting in perfectly for the for- fortune that they knew was to be theirs to actually become theirs. Waiting, and waiting, and waiting. I was actually tempted this morning to, to, to get to that point and then just stop talking for a minute and see what you all did. Just to prove my point how much we hate waiting. But I think... It would actually be more awkward for me than you. So just pretend I did it. It'd be like, oh yeah, that was awkward. Let's move on. Waiting and waiting and waiting until, verse 4, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Waiting and waiting and waiting until the fullness of time had come. One version says, but when the time arrived that was set by God the Father, at just the right time... Because timing was incredibly important for the coming of the Messiah. Timing's important for us in every—I'd say everyday life. That's—that's that's, this first illustration has nothing to do with everyday life. You, most of us don't play football every day. But there's this thing called a timing route. The Ravens would do well to learn something about this. <laughs> it's a rough week for you Ravens fans. Sorry. The idea is you run a certain number of yards and then you cut to the right, and while you're still running straight, before you cut to the right, the quarterback, anticipating where you are going, trusting that you know the timing, is actually going to throw it to where you're going to end up. Timing means everything in that situation. Timing means everything when it comes to gardening, right? You got to make sure you plant at the right season. You got to make sure that you bring your plants in before the first frost or that beautiful plant that was so lively one day goes through frost the next day, it ain't looking so lively. Timing's really important. Timing is incredibly important when you cook. When you cook, I mean, my wife loves to bake. I mean, the, the, her timing has to be uh, exactly right in order for it to look right, smell right, taste right, for the smoke detector not to go off for, for all those important aspects of, of cooking. Timing is important, and, and, and this says that adjust the right time. God showed up. Well, what made it the, the just the right time? Well, there's a number of things. You, you've got, uh, thanks to Alexander the Great in the centuries before this, conquering the world and, and, and bringing the Greek language around the world, there was a common language that all the people could speak and understand. So that allowed the, the communication of the good news of the coming of the Messiah to spread fast and far. Then you've got the, the Roman Empire coming in and taking everything over and, and, and establishing this almost global peace for a period of time. The Pax Romana, or Pax Romana, uh, the the ideas that allowed again for the effective spread of the the good news. uh, They also came in and built historically famous roads. The Roman road system is is still known to be one of the marvels of the ancient world. Having those roads established and built and safe and laid out allowed for travel, which would also carry the good news of the, the gospel. In fact, at the same time, All the old religions, the old pagan religions, were beginning to fail and falter as people saw them for what they were, which was empty and powerless. Uh, Just before Christ was born, there was a a renewed interest in people looking for the Messiah. So you have all of these different factors playing a role in what made this just the right time. But can I tell you what really made it just the right time? Because God said so. Because God said so. No one told him when it should happen. It wasn't a matter of coincidence that these things were happening. It was a part of God's divine plan that had been established from before the foundation of the world to have Jesus born in that stable at that precise moment. In God's omniscience, he knows how all things work together. He sees the end From the beginning, he knows what's most effective, what's most judicious, what's best for the situation. Here, let's take a step out of the Christmas focus and think about how that applies to you right now where you sit. Whatever it is that's happening in your life right now is not by mistake. All things have flowed through the divine hand of God and are according to his perfect timing was established long before the foundation of the world. And he can be trusted. Now again, it doesn't make it easy. God knows what he's doing. God knows exactly what he's doing. And So at just the right time, it says the son of God, God sent his son, fully God, to be born of a woman, fully man. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He was born under the law like any other Jewish man. He was responsible to the written revelation of God's law. But unlike any other man, he kept that law perfectly. He sinned never. And then he kept going because he came to redeem those under the law. How How did he redeem us? Let me remind you of what was said just a chapter ago in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To redeem something means to bring something back from destruction, to restore it. And here, what happened was Jesus Christ was born under the law so that he could redeem those of us who were under the law. He gave his own life. He shed his own blood for you, suffering for sins once for all. So that you, who were a slave to sin, had been loved by the one righteous son of God, loved enough that he willingly took your punishment and took the place that you should have been hanging, the cross that you should have been hanging on, the beating you should have endured, he took that upon himself. And he did that to redeem you from sin. He did that to reconcile you to God and to forever change your standing before God. You know how he changed your standing before God? He gave you what he calls... The adoption as sons. So adoption isn't too uncommon. We, we know what adoption is, right? Uh, we see it, we've seen it in our church. We continue to see it in our church. But, but back then, in these days, a, a wealthy man who didn't have an heir to inherit all of his belongings, or he didn't like the heir that he had, would often adopt another adult male and, and make him the, the heir of all of his possessions. And as soon as that person was adopted... In all legal respects, you're equal with the one who was born naturally into the family. So here, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you, the one true living God, the creator of heaven and earth, by grace made believers members of his family with all the rights and the responsibilities that come with that status. Do you understand how big that is? Let me me continue in what he says here. Maybe maybe it'll anchor in a little bit more. He tells us you have received the adoption as sons. Now, I, I think it's important that as we read Scripture, we study it, understand it, unpack it, and then apply it to our today. Right? So, so how does it fit in with today? And so many times, um, and many newer versions have done this as well, as they've um, translated and worked through the historical context, have gotten to a place where it's like, okay, well this, this talks about brothers. Actually, it's better understood brothers and sisters. And I will regularly, and, and many of us regularly, talk about how we celebrate the fact that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. But we can't do that with this text. He says, you have received the adoption as sons. Sons, not sons and daughters. Sons. Whoa, Frank's getting chauvinistic all of a sudden. Now, no, it, it, to, to read chauvinism into this is to read our culture back into that text. You've got to start with this text. What you need to understand is that at the time of the writing of the Galatians, to make one of your daughters an heir wasn't uncommon. To make one of your daughters an heir wasn't uncommon, it was illegal. It carried with it a fine. Carried with it a loss of respect and reputation. This isn't chauvinistic to say that you have been given the adoption as sons. This is scandalous. This is God saying, no, 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 ladies, pay attention for a moment. Stop taking the lesser seat. You're mine. You are mine, and with the relationship you have with me through my son, Jesus Christ, you have been given full rights, full responsibilities that any of those boys have. You have been adopted, ladies, and given an inheritance that is unthinkable. And because you have been adopted, you've been given a gift. Men to receive the adoption as sons means this. (laughs) You are out playing tiddlywinks. Any of you ever played tiddlywinks? I did. I did. My kids still think I make that word up. My kids think I make a lot up. I do make a lot up. But guys, we're we're out there playing tillywinks, being manly men, doing stupidity things, jumping off of things, blowing things up. This is all fine and good. I'd rather enjoy that. We had turned our back on the creator God who created heaven and earth, the one true living God. We had turned our back on him and were running the other way. And God said, That kid's a loser. I'll take him. And in that instant that you bowed the knee before Jesus Christ and called on him to be your savior, you went from a guy who's just living life, not a lot of possessions, to a prince in the kingdom of God. A co-heir with Jesus Christ. See, see, you've been given a gift. Ladies, men, you have been given a gift. And it says this in verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son If a son. Then God has made you an heir. You have been given a gift, and that gift is the spirit of his son in your heart to empower you. Now, let me me be clear, because I think sometimes it's like, I'll be honest, I'll be the first one to say this. I've said it a number of times. Um, we, we tend to treat the Holy Spirit like, like of the Trinity, he's the crazy uncle of the family right? we talk about God the Father, we talk about God the Son we get the Spirit, we're like, yeah, a little uncomfortable we shouldn't be because he's God and so let, me, let me be clear, he does empower us But this text right here is not saying he's coming upon us to empower us to speak in a language we've never studied or to have the boldness or courage to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ or to have wisdom that is beyond us or to uh, conquer sin. That's not what this text is saying. No, the Spirit has come upon you to empower you with the ability and the desire to cry out to Abba. A lot's been made of that phrase, Abba, Father. Um, it could mean Daddy. Hmm. Um, it's a relational name for sure. But instead of focusing, let me, let me focus on a couple of things that we can walk away with when we understand this relationship we have now because the Spirit has been given to us. Because the Spirit has been given us, because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us in showing up and dying where we should have died. We have been given the adoption as sons. We've been given this gift of the Spirit who empowers us and gives us the desire to cry out to Abba Father. And what we find is this. Abba Father is our Abba Father too. Just like he was Jesus's. You, 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 this, this has always stood out to me. You look at Jesus in the garden and says, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Do you, do you hear that? You, and that? And this is one of those moments where it's like, here is the humanity of Christ crying out to his dad. Everything is possible for you. I know you can do whatever you want because you are that powerful. Take this cup. But because you are my Abba Father, whatever you want, not what I want, because of what Christ did for you, because you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, you have that same relationship, that same access. You have a freedom and a boldness that comes as being one of his children. Listen, you got to understand, son, small child does not understand daddy's position. It doesn't matter how high of a position you actually have. You're just daddy. So this, the, the, here, you, you, need, you need a reminder of that? So, so you've got this little guy. That ain't the president, that's daddy. And I don't care what kind of meeting he's having. That's daddy. doesn't matter how much work he has. Because a small child doesn't understand the position that daddy may hold. He just knows that's daddy. You have that freedom and boldness. You have a level of intimacy and relationship that comes, I, 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 I'm always cautious about trying to emphasize, be, go to him like daddy, because like I don't want to make it so informal that we trivialize that we're supposed to fear him. But at the same time, what the Spirit is doing for us is making it clear that we have this freedom, this boldness, this intimacy, where we can go sit before him and share our hearts. As parents, if you have older children, you will understand this. there's, There's very few things that are sweeter than getting home from work when your child's two, three, four years old. And you open the door and they're like, Daddy! Usually it means they're in a lot of trouble, but, I mean, that's like, that's cool. in comparison to sitting on the bed with one of your kids as they just pour out their art. And, daddy I don't know what to do that's what you have been given because you're adopted as a son I know. One of the things that gets in the way of that is our own selfishness, our own sin, our own failures. And so when we hear somebody say, You have been adopted as a son, and you have freedom and boldness and intimacy, you have the opportunity to go into his presence and just pour your heart out, my fear is that many of us are like, But but I am such a loser. I have screwed this up every which way possible. I found new ways to screw this up. I've created sins. Why would he want anything to do with me? If you falter, if you stumble, if you fail, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are his adopted son. And I'm not telling you That if you are failing, you should just throw up your arms in the air and be like, yep, but I'm his. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you should be running to your Abba Father. You should be asking for his forgiveness and soaking in the grace of God. In in defeat or in loss or in sorrow, to to live like that is a defeat, sorrow, loss. I just screwed it up again. I keep doing this. That's to live like a slave. And what Paul's trying to tell us is you're not a slave to sin. You're an adopted son, even though you don't deserve it. everybody's familiar with this story. This young man, I don't know if he calls a meeting or just gets before his dad, and says, listen, pop, I want what's mine, and I want it now. Now, in the culture, (laughs) the Hebrew culture, to say that is incredibly disrespectful. But more than that, it's almost impossible, because... The the inheritance wouldn't be given to children until after dad had died and was able to sell off his stuff and then give the inheritance, right? But the young man says, I don't care. You're as good as dead to me, dad. I want my money. And dad does what he can, and he gives the young man his inheritance. And the young man leaves, immediately heads into the big city to have the full life experience and and see what real life is like. And what it looks like is just spending his money fast and furious until one day he realizes it's all gone. He's got nothing. He has no food. He has no job. He has no finances. He finds himself slinging mud with the pigs. And it says one day he comes to his senses and thinks, man, even, even the hired workers for my dad live better than this. All right, that's what I'm going to do. what I'm going to do. I have so messed up. I, I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to say, dad, I, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Can I please just be one of your hired servants? And, and some believe that he wanted to be a hired servant because then he would actually receive pay, and then he could pay his dad back. Just, just, okay, so he's running through that, that apology over and over and over again. Okay, I'm sinned against heaven, sinned against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, let me just be one of your hired servants. Heaven, okay, got it. And then, then, then he builds up the courage. I don't know if you've ever had one of those conversations where, where you've got to go own your stuff. I have, a lot. And, and there's that knot in your stomach. And it's like, okay, you know what, I just need to do this. And you go, and, and the young man goes, and I'm sure there's a knot in his stomach, and he's, he's heading down a familiar road towards home. He's running through the speech, and he's heaven, and you, no longer, okay, I got it. Before he can make it to his driveway, his father comes bounding off the front porch. No, and he's running. Now, okay. It is very awkward for an old dude to run. Okay, I'm not declaring where the line for old dude is. I'm just making a statement. But even more so when you have to wear a robe and you've got to hike the, the garment up so that your legs are free so you don't kill yourself when you're running. And here he comes tearing out to his son, and his son sees him coming. And you know that stomach pit thing that I was talking about, that knot? Now it's in his throat. As dad comes to him, he's like, here we go, here we go. And then dad is getting closer, and he starts his speech. Okay, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's all he gets out. It says dad falls on him and covers him with his teeth to celebrate and says my lost son he's home get the finest robe and let's put it on him you know whose robe was the finest right Dad's. see here's this young man saying I have so sinned against you I am no longer worthy to be called your son and here's dad saying Let me cover your sin with my robe of grace. That's what it means to be an adopted son of God. That no matter how badly it has gone for you, no matter how weak you may feel, no matter how sick and tired you are of waiting for answers, no matter how angry you are, no matter how... Filled with fear you are, no matter how many times you've sinned that way. Even though you feel like the prodigal. You feel like you have been nothing but unfaithful. you've got to do something to fix it. So if I just say the right words or do the right thing or become one of his hired servants, then we'll be good. What you need to understand is that what you need to do is acknowledge that Jesus Christ showed up for you. You have no standing before God apart from Jesus Christ. Why would you have to do something wonderful now? Jesus Christ came to set you free from the curse of the law. you are trusting in him to reconcile your relationship with god the father if you are trusting in him to bring you into the family of god not in anything you've done not in anything you will do not in any promises you make not in any church attendance not in your baptism not in carrying a big enough bible not in marrying the right person or avoiding the wrong person not in any of those things if you are trusting in jesus and in jesus alone you are an adopted son of god and you come into his presence not based on your goodness but based God showed up. Merry Christmas. Gracious Father, we have been undeserving of your grace and your love from the very beginning. Lord, I pray you would forgive us for somehow transitioning to a life where we think we need to earn your acceptance when we were accepted in spite of what we did before. Lord, please, would you bring encouragement to the souls who need encouragement. Remind them, remind them that everything that is yours is theirs as a son of God. Please, Lord, I pray that you would lift those who are weary, Remind them of your fantastic and eternal love for them. God, thank you that you loved us enough that you sent your son to die for us. Lord, may we live in light of that.